Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Today, we're delighted to speak with Brooke McCausland, Director of Brand Marketing at Neurocrine Biosciences. Before joining Neurocrine, Brooke served as a Senior Manager of Medical Aesthetics at Allergan. Brooke's journey, however, is pretty unique as it intersects the worlds of education and biotech. Brooke spent significant time as a teacher in multiple districts, which instilled in her a deep passion for making a difference in children's lives. This passion, combined with a personally driven mission to combat neurological diseases, fuels her work at Neurocrine Biosciences. In today's episode, Brooke explores her unique journey from elementary school teaching to a leadership role at Neurocrine Biosciences, the San Francisco-based biotech company dedicated to discovering, developing, and commercializing life life-changing treatments for people with serious, challenging, and under-addressed disorders. Brooke gets into the company's evolution from a startup to an industry leader and will examine the evolving landscape of healthcare, focusing on the intricate relationships between patient needs, corporate responsibility, and the complexities of modern healthcare marketing. Without further ado, please welcome Brooke McCausland, Director of Brand Marketing at Neurocrine Biosciences. Brooke, thank you very much for joining us here today. I'm excited to speak with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a minute, but I am thrilled to be here. It has been a minute, but it's it's nice to see you again. Um, in fact, the last time I saw you, you were still at Allergan. That's, I think, before the AbV acquisition, right? Yes, it was. And now you're with Neurocrine Biosciences. Do you want to maybe, um, for those who aren't familiar, do you want to tell us what is Neurocrine Biosciences, what is your mission? Absolutely. Um, so Neurocrine Biosciences started out as a small biotech in San Diego. We've now grown to over uh, 1,300 employees, which is pretty incredible. Uh, currently have two products on the market um, and a very, very robust pipeline, but truly the priority is patients in these um, unserved disease states, if you will, um, really trying to reach those patients that don't have a lot of options out there. It's a very patient-centric and R&D-focused company. Um, that's, as I said, a robust pipeline. I'm repeating myself. But it actually brought my husband and I back down to San Diego, which is where we are from. So it really was um, an incredible transition for me in leaving Allergan and being able to join Neurocrine and getting back to my hometown. Okay, so hang on. So let's talk about incredible transitions because is San Diego also where you were a school teacher at one point? Yes, I am a very um, probably interesting background, if you will. I like to tell people that it doesn't matter where you start. Um, after I graduated college, I went back to school and became an elementary school teacher um, and then pivoted to pharma and joined Allergan. So take that, a middle school teacher and joined pharma. Um, and really started at the bottom and worked my way up. Um, and I really value that experience. I, I find that oftentimes where you start in the company, you're really that gatekeeper of all the information. You really are an invaluable resource. And being able to grow and have incredible mentors that really helped me grow, um, I felt very fortunate at my time at Allergan. Well, and of course, now you know you're in a, a role where patient education is is critical, as well as HCP education. Um, yes. Do you see parallels there, or is it just the same word, education? You know, I think both are very unique. Um, I think 
when you think about patient education, you really have to reach the broad spectrum and you can't just speak to patients. You have to speak to the care partners. You need to think about their adult children. I know that we're all entering this era where we're becoming caretakers of our parents. And so I try and put myself in those shoes of what would I want to know or learn. Um, as for HCPs, I I always like to joke that, you know, if you can navigate key opinion leaders, you can do anything. Um, you know, you're working with incredibly intelligent, experienced individuals, and you can't dock down to them and you can't talk at them, um, right? You want to be their partner, essentially. Um, so I find that when you are speaking to HCPs, it really does require that unique knack, if you will, not just any information you're providing, but the way in which you speak with them. And of course, you know, you, you opened by talking about the, not just the pipeline, but the patients, right? The importance of patients in the overall sort of ecosystem and marketing plans for neurocrine. Um, there's a, there's a you know, industry-wide trend towards the consumerization of healthcare. Um, you know, this obviously in our mind it, it is a reflection of the fact that our expectations of pharma brands, biotech brands, et cetera, are being set by our experiences with other brands, you know, like, so now we think that it should be just as easy as it is getting something from Amazon when it comes to finding a medicine. Um, but of course we have to market responsibly too. So what are your thoughts on this? Like, how do you meet patients' expectations, um, you know, while also respecting the fact that these are serious medicines? So I'm going to give a bit of a unique answer, but when I joined Neurocrine, I was brought on to launch a Parkinson's drug, a new adjunct to the market. I lost my dad in 2014 to Parkinson's. So for me, this was really like a dream come true that I get to work on a product that could potentially help Parkinson's patients. The reason I bring that up is the responsibility we have to consumers to educate them appropriately and to ensure realistic expectations. I was that consumer. I was putting myself in those shoes. I remember my mom doing all the research and all her homework in order to really try and determine what was out there for my dad and what was available. So for me, when I was working on this product and what our commercialization plan would look like and how we were speaking to patients, caregivers, it was absolutely essential to me that we were very accurate with our statements, not overpromising, because at the end of the day, any improvement in Parkinson's is going to make a difference, but we need to make sure that we're clear with what we're speaking about, um, you know, Overpromising, not that the FDA would even allow you to do it, but what you would be doing to a patient or family, you can't go down that path. You have to be responsible. And I think anyone that sits in a marketing seat right now, I think you have a bigger responsibility than ever, especially with all the avenues that you can be speaking to these patients. You know, think about like the Facebook groups and Twitter. I mean, right, the, the information is endless. So I think that accurate messaging that, um, what am I trying to say? Ensuring that the information you're getting out there is not only accurate, but realistic. Um, also trying to speak to maybe what their experiences are. It's it's more essential than ever. So you mentioned care partners a few minutes ago, you know, in addition to patients. And one of the things that came up in a conversation we had on this show with Carolyn Wong at Ultragenics recently was that their company had actually been involving patients and care partners in the drug development 
management process, not just in, you know, sort of marketing campaigns or, or, you know, patient support programs, but actually in drug development. That seemed relatively novel or innovative to me, but it could be that neurocrine's also doing that. So what are your thoughts on that? I think it's an incredible idea. It is not um, an avenue that we have pursued yet. I would argue they're probably at the forefront of things. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think the caveat is with clinical trials, right? Um, you don't know what the outcomes are going to be until you have your data come out. Um, but I think it would be a really interesting avenue for pharmaceutical companies to look at. So you, you mentioned the clinical data and you know, for the last several decades, that's been basically how we marketed pharmaceutical products. As we have more and more products coming to market, and you know, you also mentioned a Parkinson's product that was, you know, comes to market after obviously the first generation therapies. Um, we're starting to see products that have more differentiating factors, right? So it's not just that they're efficacious and that they're safe, but they might also be more tolerable, or they might, you know essentially, you know, be, you can, you can stay on other therapies while taking this drug, or it's a better, you know, like dosing mechanism or whatever the different, you know, differentiators for these products are. Um, but when you think about HCPs, our data says that basically all they care about is safety and efficacy. <laughs> it's the patients, obviously, they care about everything else. So I'm curious, you know, are you seeing that as well? And if so, like, how do you, how do you try and make, you know, find that middle ground where doctors actually pay attention to the things that patients care about besides just what's in a journal? No, I think that's a great point. And I think when clinical trials are starting, obviously we know they take years and years to come to fruition, but it really has to start there of what is going to differentiate this product from the rest on the market, what makes it meaningful. And you need to include that in your, you know, primary endpoints, secondary endpoints. They need to think about it that early because at the end of the day, cost really comes to play. And if you really can't differentiate yourself, let's say you're branded and you need to differentiate from a generic, well, odds are you're going to go with the generic if it seems the same because of cost. So I think it's really it has to start in the clinic, if you will, at the R&D phase. You have to factor it in at that point. And then as you move forward, once you get into that commercialization stage, when you're talking to HCPs, that's really what you have to hang your hat on is why is this different? And if you can't really speak to that, I don't think that drug would necessarily have a chance anymore. Um, and again, I go back to, there are so many generics on the market. I know when I go to the pharmacy, I'm usually getting a generic. I've started to pay more attention to it now, working in this industry. Um, but I think cost is the biggest barrier. And so ensuring that you have that differentiating data, it, it might be efficacy, it might be safety, it might be, um, you know, a little bit more into the science, but um, you really have to make that, that fight isn't the right word. You really have to ensure that you articulate that clearly to your HCPs, because if they don't believe in it, they're not going to prescribe it. And at the end of the day, right, they're the one writing the script. So if they don't believe it, they're not going to write it. Yep. I think that's exactly right. Um, there's something you said Actually, before we jumped on, you know, and and started recording here, that stuck with me is, you know, you, you made some comment about, um, you know, wanting to make sure that our conversation was fluid, natural, you know, less like your typical patient testimonial, right? Because we all know 
um, real patient stories If people could see me right now. I'm doing air quotes, like real patient stories have like taken over pharmaceutical marketing. They're everywhere. And they tend to be a little bit, um, they can feel, they can feel scripted. Um, we're big, we're, we're big sort of uh, believers in this idea of moving from storytelling to story making, right? Doing things that people talk about where you're creating a new story. I'm curious, first of all, just what are your thoughts? on story making, you know, as a concept. Um, and then secondarily, what are your thoughts on how we get better at telling patient testimonials or sharing patient testimonials? Oh gosh. I think the idea of story making is incredible because I think that you can really have that resonate with your audience. Oh, the challenges of being able to tell a patient's story in, in pharma, you know, I wish I had the answer for that. I think we have made strides as it relates to being able to provide a bit more of a, a real world, real life experience in these testimonial videos. I think through um, whether that be an activity that maybe the patient is doing, where I think our biggest roadblock remains is the language or the copy that can be used. Um, at the end of the day, if we can't pull it from the label to support it, it's very challenging for us to be able to use that. Now, we are seeing the use of real-world data, I'll do my air quotes, um, which is aftermarket or post-market data that we can capture once the product's been in market. I think being able to include that, which sometimes you can get your, your MLR or your PRC comfortable with, that's a great avenue. But I think that's why these patient groups, these advocacy groups, these Facebook groups are so important to all these patients because that's really where they... I think at their real world experiences, if you will, of someone trying something and you get to hear firsthand from them. Um, I mean, I would go as far to say as sometimes I think they'd rather hear from those people than they would from pharma, even though I am yep. pharma. But, you know, yep. I think I think that's the truth. So I think, you know, as a pharmaceutical company advertising, we have an even greater obligation to ensure that the information we put out there is, is accurate and understood. So then as it travels through these groups, you know, it's not misinterpreted, misquoted, it's very clear, understandable, um, and can really get to the right audience. So let's so let's talk a little bit about um, PR in the context of marketing. You you know, spent a long time. What eight, how long were you at Allergan? Eight years? almost eight years. Yeah. Yeah. So eight years at Allergan, which is really like a, it's like a a totally different thing, right? Like promoting and marketing Botox and all the injectables. It's it's a completely different thing. But you can see there the impact of sort of normalizing a conversation and kind of what PR did for that that industry, you know, over over many years is very different than how it typically works in most sort of general therapeutic areas. You know, so you've got all that background and experience. Are there learnings that you can sort of apply from um, your experience with, with Allergan or is it really just a totally different world? You know, I think what you said around normalizing the conversation is definitely carried through. Um, conversations about rare diseases or maybe not understanding what you have being able to normalize that conversation is definitely an area that you have to pull through, right? You really need to start at sometimes at the basics, if you will, of just disease state education, um, which in turn helps to normalize those conversations. 
you know, we as, as people don't like to think anything is wrong with us, right? We want to continue moving forward. And if it's just a little something doesn't bother us too much, I'm not going to bring it up to my doctor. We have to encourage these conversations. And I think you really hit the nail on the head. The more we can normalize conversations around whether it be a rare disease or Botox or something else, um, that's really where we have to start. Mm -hmm. So one of the other things that I feel like has come up a lot in recent conversations is rethinking um, how we map the customer experience, the customer journey, um, in particular, just in the context of America becoming so different. Right. Whether that's political polarization, whether that's, you know, the very um, all, all of the movement around uh, diversity, equity and inclusion that has really brought everybody out to say, you know what, I'm going to be my real self now. Um, and it calls into question the idea that we can create like a patient journey map that's going to apply to everybody, for example. Right. Um have you have you struggled with this? Have you tackled this? Is this something that has been a topic of conversation? Is how do we define the journey for such a diverse, um, you know, potential patient population? You know, what's interesting is we have not seen too much of a change in the way that we have historically mapped our patients as of yet. I think this probably varies depending on the disease category that you're looking at. Um, I would venture to say that medical aesthetics has probably seen a lot of change. Um, whereas I think that some of these rare diseases, you haven't seen so much change. Um, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes in rare disease categories, you'll also see um, not so many levels of wealth, if you will. And so you're really leaning on, um, again, it comes back to cost. So I think outside of what's going on, you know, in our world right now, at the end of the day, the, the biggest hurdle for patients is cost. And so, you know, come January of every year, you have to start over, right? And so that definitely makes an impact on whether, whether you're going to be able to afford your medication, you wait a few months, and then you go. I know that's probably where you weren't going with this question. But, you know, at at the end of the day, I think that still remains the biggest hurdle. And so as we continue to map the patients and the journey, that hasn't changed so much, but that gap come January, February, I mean, that that remains. Yeah, and that pricing and access is without a doubt one of the biggest factors in the overall patient journey and patient experience. So, so all right, so we've talked a lot about real people. Um, we should talk about fake people for a little bit here because it is 2023 and this is a marketing podcast. So um, AI, friend or foe? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, 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 this one is a tough one for me. My husband recently showed me a video on TikTok or something, and I thought it was a real person and it wasn't. It was AI. And that was mildly terrifying. It scares me a little bit for just the land of medicine in general, because a lot of what we see or read from an influencer or someone else, oftentimes we take as Bible. And now thinking that this could be <laughs> AI generated, I, it just, it concerns me for this, the misinformation to just continue increasing. But I think that just puts a bigger responsibility on, on pharma, biotech across the board. Um, I do think there are really amazing ways that it could be leveraged, but I think as with any type of new technology, we just have to be careful. Um, 
and kind of see where it takes us. Well, I think that's, you know, I think it's very smart. I think it's where most of us are landing right now is we know there's something good in here, but it looks like there's a lot of risk wrapped around it as well. Um, and then what about, so final final question on this topic, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring us back to where we started talking more about your career and some maybe advice you would give to others. But, you know, is um, data, analytics, measurement, it, it feels like this was the topic on everybody's mind for years. And yet, I don't feel like we had any major breakthrough or aha or like settled the debate at any point. First of all, do you agree with that? And second of all, have you figured it out? Have you cracked the code on how we measure the impact of our work? You know, it's so funny. You know, when you when I first started in marketing, you had to have all the data, the analytics, the measurement to essentially validate everything you were doing, right? To validate your spend on DTC, to validate your HCP campaign. It almost felt more like a CYA situation than it did. <laughs> this is really, mm -hmm. this is what's driving our decisions. You know, I think more and more, yes, we have the, the data, but there is a human factor to all of this. And I think we're weighing that a bit heavier than we used to, right? That recognizing, you know, the data only tells us so much. There are so many other factors to consider. So I do think data analytics measurements important, but I think it's just one component. I think there are many other components that have to go into play now in order to be successful. Yeah, and I think that makes complete sense, especially when you consider the area you were talking about, data was still, a, it could be a unique advantage. You could be the only one using data, like in the proverbial money ball, but now everybody has it. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, so I said career. So imagine that we have a school teacher listening to this podcast right now who is thinking to herself, <laughs> someday I want to be running marketing in a pharma company. <laughs> So what advice would you give to her about the steps she should take or, you know, like the the lessons learned? You know, as cliche as it sounds, it's never too late. I was very concerned starting out in pharma in my late 20s, which now seems like so long ago and so young. But I also wasn't afraid to start at the bottom. And I think some people, as you get older, it's intimidating to think I have to start at the bottom and have all these people above me that are younger than me. I think there's this um, there's this perception about that. But I think when you do start at the bottom up and you can work your way up, not only have you earned it, but you've lived it and you've learned it. I had a lot of sink or swim situations that I am so grateful for because it forced me to learn quickly um, and ensure that I was successful. So truly, it's never too late um, to make that change. I mean, this was an, a, in a complete career change and also a relocation. Um, so I upended my husband and we moved so that I could pursue this career. Um, so it was certainly scary and it certainly had some bumps, but I look where I am now and I wouldn't change it. I think you need those bumps. I think you need that in order to really appreciate everything you went through. I think you just um, designed a t-shirt or maybe it's existing and you were quoting it, but lived it, learned it, earned it, huh? Oh, I love that. Lived it, learned it, earned it. Okay. We need to trademark that right now. Okay, great. That's fantastic. <laughs> All right. Well, Brooke, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this has been great and really appreciate you sharing all of your insights today. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
All right. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us and our agency, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.